All right, we are in Psalm 127 today. If you'll turn there, please, Psalm 127. We're going to read all five verses. If you are able, please stand with me as we read God's holy word, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. And we pray as we consider it today that you would lead us into all truth, that your spirit, Father, would guide us and teach us, and that we, in the hearing of your word and the receiving of your word, would be transformed from glory to glory into the very image of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we pray your blessing now as we study, as we hear, as we receive your word today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, as we look at Psalm 127, we're going to see God's sovereign care and the meaning that he imbues in some very important elements of our lives. We're going to see his care over our homes, over our cities, our nation, our labors, and even our sleep. And we're going to see that apart from the Lord, that all these things don't really matter, that they're in vain. We're also going to see that Children are a heritage from the Lord, that they're a reward, a protection, a blessing, and an honor. So as we look at this, I want to just start out this morning by uh, observing two things. Um, In history, nearly every society, regardless of where they're located, practices these two things, and they're almost universal. And the first is, Some kind of blessing from God or gods was sought in the building of major and sometimes even minor structures. And that blessing was was sought from the true Jehovah God of Israel. It was sought from false gods of the Canaanites and the Chaldeans and the Assyrians and the Aztecs and the Mayans and any number of hundreds of others. And yet there is almost an an urgency, uh, a genetically embedded need to dedicate structures uh, to God or something or someone. There is and should be an innate desire to make the buildings that we live in in particular have some meaning and value that lasts. And God has put that on our hearts. Um, It tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, in verse 11, that he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God, uh, what God has done from the beginning to the end. What that means is that God has given us a sense of, of, of eternity and placed in our heart desire to do things, to build things that matter to him, not just now, but for all of eternity. You know, my uh, niece recently gave Cindy and, and me um, an old photo of the groundbreaking dedication of this very church. 
Uh, that was 47 years ago. And uh, I can recall clearly seeing the four men who, this reveals my age, I'm afraid. I remembered every one of their names. And uh, they had these uh, uh, gold-plated shovels and little ribbons on the top. And they were all right out here in this, in this field, uh, digging into the ground symbolically as they said a prayer over the building that was to be built in this place. And then later, when the building was completed, this auditorium was ready. It was a little different back then. It had pews and had a big curtains back here and, and uh, choir loft. You remember choirs? And, and um, there was a dedication. Oh, there's a big pulpit here too, about really big. And uh, there was a dedication service. And the, and the service was all about committing this facility, this building, to the work of the Lord himself. And a prayer that God would honor all of that and, and it will all be used for his glory. And over the years, we have seen that happen over and over and continues to happen even today as God uses this facility for his purpose. It's not just a building. It's a place of worship. It's a place where ministry happens in a powerful way. I thank God for that. Well, the second practice we see is almost universal, at least with rare exceptions, is the celebration of a birth of a child. Uh, and uh, in most societies, the annual day of birth or the birthday. It's a recognition of the miracle of new life and the continuation of life from generation to generation. Uh, and even Cindy and, and, and I, uh, as culturally illiterate as we are, let's be real about that, uh, we have seen at least the stage play of Lion King where that monkey priest, and I, I, okay, I did have to look up his name, but the monkey priest was named Rafiki, and he dedicates newly born Simba to some unknown god or gods. It's not clear, and he holds him up. He's on this pinnacle of this mountain, and he holds up this baby lion to dedicate him while the adoring father lion, Mufasa, and mother lion, Sarabi, uh, look on with pride. And <laughs> no laughing, Kevin, okay? And <laughs> I got this down. And in the background, there's this music playing, The Circle of Life. And uh, it talks vaguely about faith and love. Well, we might enjoy that story. We understand that that's just a story. The real dedication of children only happens when we commit our children to the most holy God. And so Cindy and I dedicated each of our five children to our Lord Jesus right here on this platform uh, many years ago in deference to my daughter who's here now. I won't mention how many years ago that was, maybe 15 or so, right? 20. And uh, uh, we dedicated our children right here. And uh, uh, later on, um, they in turn dedicated their children, uh, many of them right here on this platform once again. A wonderful, glorious, appropriate circle of life that God has granted to us over and over again among the families in this church. What a great heritage. What a blessing we have at Grace Church to see that happen. Um, and it's a holy practice that many parents continue, obviously today, and one that we in this church wholeheartedly uh, encourage. Well, Psalm 127 in particular is, a, is a known as a psalm of ascent. You'll see that in the, in the top heading of your, of your Bible. Uh, it was traditionally sung by Jewish pilgrims as they traveled up to Jerusalem to celebrate major feasts such as the Passover. And we, the author is believed to be Solomon, 
but the occasion for the writing is unknown. The theme of this psalm is God's absolute sovereign care over every aspect of our lives, including our homes, our work, our children, and even our sleep. It echoes much of the book of Ecclesiastes, also written by King Solomon. And in it, he makes it really clear in this psalm and in the book of Ecclesiastes that nothing has meaning apart from the Lord. Uh, There's no real worth or eternal value in anything done except the Lord blesses it. Not our homes, not our jobs, not even our nation's military might. James 1.27 tells us every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. Everything that's good, everything that's given meaning and purpose and eternal value come from our Heavenly Father. And apart from Him, nothing has real meaning. So let's look at the psalm this morning. In verse 1, we see the Lord's sovereign care over our homes. Look at just the first part of verse 1. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, this is an absolutely universal truth. Building anything apart from God's blessing is useless from an internal perspective. We understand that the things that we build will inevitably someday be torn down. But we want the things that we do, our buildings that we live in, where we work and what we do to matter. And we don't want it just to matter for a day or for a few moments. We want God to be pleased and we want it to matter for eternity. Solomon echoes that theme in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to be there a couple times this morning if you want to turn there. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 24, he says there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I saw, this also I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? What this says to us absolutely clearly is that everything that has meaning comes from the hand of the Lord. And he grants to us joy in our work. And apart from him, nothing has any meaning at all. And that certainly includes the building of buildings, and in particular, the buildings of a home. So the house that we see referred to here, unless the Lord builds the house, isn't isn't some great edifice like the temple or a cathedral. It's a literal house where people live. And we all understand that the building is not an end in itself that's talking about here. It's a place we all want to make a what? We want to make our house a home, don't we? course we do. For ourselves and for our children and throughout history, our extended families. So we understand that the house here is also the household. And the building, the establishment, the nurturing and sustaining of the household must also be included in that understanding. Our households live in houses. The imagery here doesn't suggest that the Lord literally builds the house. And yet we understand that God, in the truest sense, is the builder. And it is by God's grace that anything is built. Now we see that pretty clearly uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, if you want to turn there. In Hebrews chapter 3, this is a really important verse that we need to understand and keep in mind. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 3. It says this, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. 
Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Wow. So people build houses. We understand that. But at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, and all through the day, God is the builder, and he is the one who is worthy of more honor than the one who actually physically builds a building. God is the only. God is the builder. And so for believers, the building of anything, and I'm thinking, should include a dedication, a giving back of that building to the Lord. And apart from him, again, there's no lasting meaning or purpose or blessing. Dedication ultimately is a transfer of ownership to God, recognizing him as the source and giving him the glory. So, so I realize that you might be thinking, well, I, I didn't literally build my house or my condo or my apartment or my bedroom. Well, very few of us have literally physically built a house, but we all build our households and we all need to dedicate wherever we live, where we live to the Lord. If you haven't done so already, what would it mean to your family if you went home today? And if you haven't done it, just stop and pray and give your home, give your household to the Lord as his own, for he alone is the builder. Use it, Lord, for your glory. I know of at least one family that dedicated every room in their home, room by room, to the Lord. I'm sure there are others in this, in this church, and why not? May everything, every room where we live be used for him. One of the most powerful prayers in all the Bible is found in 1 Chronicles, if you want to turn there, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, where David acknowledges the Lord as the source of, of, of all that will be used in the building of the temple. You recall that David was actually disqualified from the building of the temple because, as the scripture tells us, he shed much blood. But the Lord allowed him to assemble all the materials for the building of the temple. And David saw fit to stop and literally dedicate and thank the Lord for even the building materials before his son Solomon had the privilege of actually building the temple. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 10, he says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And then later, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon says his dedication prayer for the temple, where the Shekinah glory of the Lord was to reside in the Holy of Holies above the mercy seat. And Solomon was awed at the very thought that the most holy God would come to dwell in the presence of his people. And so he asked this rhetorical question in verse 18 of 2 Chronicles 6. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So Solomon humbly acknowledged God's presence among his people. So you might be wondering how a dedication of a home compares to the dedication of Solomon's temple. It's a good question. Well, there is indeed a direct linkage. It's this. 
Keep in mind that Solomon's temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So where does God reside? God has promised all believers that he will dwell not just among his people, but he will dwell in them. Paul reminds the Corinthians in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And as believers, God dwells within us wherever we are, and I would suggest in particular in our homes. Again, should we not dedicate our homes in the building of our household as well as our very body, presenting to him our bodies as a living sacrifice and a home as a dwelling place where he resides in our hearts. We see here not only God's sovereign care over our homes, but we also see here his care over our cities. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the latter part of verse 1, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Well, the most diligent watchmen of a city, or for that matter, military defenses of a country, count for nothing apart from God's sovereign control and God's protection. I think most of us by now are acutely aware of North Korea's attempt to develop a missile capable of delivering nuclear warheads to the U.S. Let me just assure you that that actually is nothing new. I asked Cindy the other day if she remembered the drop and cover drills of our childhood back in the 1950s when we were convinced that Russia would soon be raining missiles down upon Southern California. And I know some of you find it hard to believe that anyone's still alive that lived in the 50s, but that's what we were told to do as little kids. Uh, all of a sudden, we're going to have a missile drill, and we were to drop and, and, and duck under our desks to protect ourselves from those missiles that would soon be coming in, as if they would somehow protect us from uh, nuclear explosions. Really? But then, as now, we nonetheless fervently prayed that somehow our missile defense systems would protect us. How much more do we need to understand that it is the Lord who watches over the city? It is the Lord who gives us protection. And the watchman, whoever that may be, watch in vain apart from God's sovereign care over us. And in that, we can have our rest. In Psalm chapter 8, if you go back a bunch of chapters, Psalm chapter 8, um, we find this wonderful picture of faith, simple faith. It says in, in, in Psalm chapter 8 and verse 2, um, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. Well, what that's talking about here is this, this simple faith that comes out of the mouth of a young child, out of a babe that expresses faith in the protection of the Lord himself, that takes it almost not for granted, but as a given. And it is that simple faith in the almighty, omnipotent God that gives us our protection over our enemies, over the avenger. And he alone, that faith alone, is stronger than our enemies' weapons of mass destruction. And so we see the Lord's sovereign care over our homes. We see here God's sovereign care over our cities. And now 
We continue on uh, in the first part of verse 2, his care over our labors that are, apart from him, absolutely in vain. He says here in verse 2, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Let's just look at that first part of verse 2. We must dedicate, we must consecrate our work to the Lord. It's his gift as we've already seen. I would remind us that God actually gave work to Adam in the Garden of Eden as a gift. This was before the fall, before sin entered into the world. It wasn't a punishment. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord says, the scripture says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God grants to us by his grace work, toil. But what gives it meaning? Ecclesiastes, back to Ecclesiastes. Go to chapter 3 if you want to follow along or just listen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 <clears throat> and verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better than them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, that nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Well, it could not be clearer. God is the one who's granted to us the gift of work. And He and He alone gives our work, whatever it might be, whether it's widgets coming down the assembly line or some, from man's point of view, really important job. God gives it all work and meaning. And we do it unto Him and we give Him the glory. He causes that to have meaning before his throne that reverberates throughout eternity. Praise God. He gives us purpose. So we look at this verse. It's vain we rise up early in the morning, go to, to, to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. When we are anxious about our work, it loses its meaning. Apart from the Lord's blessing, busting it doesn't get us what we need the most, meaning in our work, security. In my youth, I was um, a lot more foolish that I am today. Um, I'm not saying that I'm done with that part, but I'm doing a little better. But I recall in my youth very clearly, uh, I was anxious. And I was anxious about being successful. Um, I, um, this should be not a big surprise to some of you, I wanted to be in charge. I wanted to be in charge of something. And I was determined to get there. And I was determined to work as hard as I could to bust it, to make that happen for all the wrong reasons. So I would get up really early and I'd go to bed late at night. I can recall uh, uh, in my last couple of years working, uh, uh, at, uh, working while I was going to school at Biola, um, and then even a couple of years after that, I worked in construction. And I can recall driving by the, down the 55 freeway 
um, look, uh, in, in, in the early morning hours, long before the sun came up, and driving right by our church, heading off to work, and praying that it wouldn't rain that day and I'd lose a day's work. Well, this verse makes it really clear that that sort of thing all by itself is useless. It's useless to get up early. It's useless to go to bed late. It's useless to work hard, to eat the bread of anxious toil. It's useless apart from giving that work back to God and allowing God to transform whatever we do into that which matters to Him. And it wasn't until I began to understand that and to begin to give my work back to Him that God allowed me to do that which was glorifying to Him and to let go of my anxiety and my worry about being in charge because I needed to understand that He and He alone was in charge and I was only being used of Him as His servant. And so we see that God tells us we need to be careful about anxiety in our work. Scripture tells us really clearly that, that uh, we're to be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication to let our requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Well, we also see that God's sovereign care over our rest. Notice here, it says uh, that he gives to his beloved sleep, the last part of verse 2. When we don't have the anxiety, when we let God be in charge of our lives and on our work in particular, God takes that anxiety away and we are able to enjoy rest, specifically sleep. By the way, the reference here to his beloved might be to Solomon himself. Um, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 25, it says that God gave Solomon another name, Jedidiah, which means beloved of Jehovah. So Solomon might have been making a little personal reference to himself here, uh, even as he was anxious about doing his work like building temple, yet God gave him sleep. What we do know for sure, though, is that sleep is God's gift that reminds us that we are made in God's image. When God stretched out his omnipotent hand in creating the universe and all that's in it, Scripture tells us that God declared after each day of creation that it was good. In Genesis chapter 2, in verses 2 and 3, it says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the fourth commandment tells us that we are to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, which by definition means there must be a rest or a cessation from our everyday work. Now, God didn't rest because he was tired. God rested because he wanted to make his creation holy. And he wanted us to recognize that all that God gives us and all that God creates, even through our work, is holy when it's given holy to him. But actually, um, with few and very short exceptions, all of us rest for about a third of every single day. And we do that virtually every day. And if you'll note, there's no need for an 11th commandment. You know, thou shalt sleep every day. God didn't need to tell us that because God wired us that way. 
We have no choice. Our bodies crave sleep and we're miserable without it. In fact, some of us, when we don't get a good night's sleep, we wake up grumpy and grouchy and not fun to be with. Sometimes we don't sleep because we hang on to that anxiety. Did you know that, in fact, forced sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation, is considered a form of torture? And those of you who can't sleep on international flights understand that pretty well. But a good night's sleep, uh, there's nothing better to wake up refreshed and renewed and ready for a new day. Sleep is the only part of the day when, when, whether we like it or not, we relinquish all appearances of control. Think about it. We are dead asleep, literally. Uh, we, we curl up in the fetal position, at least some of us do. We drool, we thrash, we snuggle, we dream, we snore, and sometimes we snort. And with the, yet we still wake up refreshed and unembarrassed. Unless, of course, we're on that airplane and we wake up and everyone's staring at us. I've been there. But the reality is that we are utterly helpless when we sleep. God and God alone is in control. He is the one who keeps us and sustains us, and we understand that when we sleep. And it reminds us that he should be in control and is in control even when we are awake. Moms, how many times have you stayed up most or all of the night watching over a sick child? And as much as you wanted to, it was impossible to continue without eventually yielding to sleep. But the good news, the good news here is that God never sleeps. Psalm 121, you can just flip back a few pages. Psalm 121 says this, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, Behold, he, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God will never slumber or sleep. Later in the psalm it says, in verse 7, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What a glorious truth. The Lord who cares for us keeps us even while we're sleeping because He never slumbers and never sleeps. Well, if we look at the next three verses now, as we turn now to our homes and particularly our children, um, these verses, uh, three through five, are for some of us the most, some of the most familiar in all of Scripture. Certainly to those who uh, have families uh, or desire to have uh, families. They're also the source of much needless concern and confusion about some really big questions of life, like um, should we have children? Is it okay not to have children? How many children should we have, biologically or adoptive? What's the right number? How do we know when our quiver is full? And, and if I'm single or I can't have children, is this a sign of God's disapproval? Many of you have probably asked those very questions. Some of these I can answer with certitude, and some of those um, I'm going to give you counsel. The first thing that we need to note here is that children are a heritage. Children are a heritage. Look at the first part of verse 3. First part of verse 3 in Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. 
Well, they're on heritage in, in two ways. Uh, a heritage is like an inheritance. They come from the same root word. It's something that's bequeathed by another person. In this case, God sovereignly gives children to those whom he alone chooses. They are a pure gift from God. Secondly, children are the fulfillment of God's promise to bless us through our children. Not only in this generation, but also in generations to come. Many of us, and myself included, are, are children and grandchildren of godly parents and grandparents. I thank God for that, that heritage. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord promises Moses this, in verse 9, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God promises his blessing generation to generation for those who keep his covenant instead fast. Those who love him and keep his commandments, God will keep his covenant and his steadfast love to a thousand generations. So children are a heritage from the Lord. Secondly, uh, children are a reward. This is an interesting one. Children are a reward. What does that mean? Verse 3 the latter part of verse 3. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Another way of saying the fruit of the womb, babies, children, are a blessing from the Lord. This reward is in particular for godly parents who raise their children in the Lord. Keep in mind, God is faithful to keep his covenant to those who love him and keep his commandments. Why should we expect our children to honor us uh, if we haven't first honored our own parents. And how can we expect then our children to in turn honor the Lord? So we must understand that these declarations of God's, are God's intended order. But we also need to be reminded that even godly parents bring children into a godless, fallen world. Sometimes even the most faithful parents see children rebel. Not because of their lack of faithfulness, but because of our because of our children's own willful disobedience. It's only by grace they are saved. But nonetheless, even children who rebel are a blessing from the Lord, a reward from the Lord, because we have the privilege of praying for them all the days of our lives. And children, next, are also a protection. They're a heritage, they're a reward, they're a protection. This is an interesting one. Like arrows, verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Well, the imagery that we have here in these arrows um, is of grown children joining and protecting their parents in times of war. Children who grow up and help their parents protect the city. In a real sense, our children, the children of our youth, as it says here, are to protect and care for their older parents. Here's the principle that we're seeing here. That's also God's intended order. Before Social Security and before any government program, God intended that children honor their parents throughout their lives, and in particular as they grow older and their roles begin to reverse. God's command that children are to honor their mother and their father doesn't end at age 21. God calls us to honor our father and mother throughout, their li throughout our lives. Sadly, that principle is too often forgotten in our society. 
I recently received a report of a daughter, not in this church, who had a well-paying job. And she called, her, she called her abandoned and divorced mother just to tell her, Mom, uh, you need to get married because uh, I'm not going to care for you when you get old. Really? What a shameful thing to be said. I pray that such a story may never be told of the children in this church. Children are a protection of their parents. And then, continuing on, look at verse 5. Blessed is the man whose quiver, who fills his quiver with them. Wow, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, with children. Well, we all, I think, understand that not all quivers have the same capacity. Some couples, God has granted capacity for very large families. We've certainly proven that in this church. And some, not as many, and some, not at all. The good news here is that Scripture doesn't give us, give us a formula. God must reveal that to each couple. But what every parent or potential parent needs to know is that God clearly affirms the infinite value of children. The recognition that all are God's wonderful and incomprehensible gift. God's great blessing. Jesus said, speaking of, Jesus said, for such is the kingdom of God. Talking about children. In other words, we must come to him as a little child. And nowhere in the Bible does God rescind his command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. This is particularly true for God's people. We see children not as a burden or an inconvenience or even an obligation. They are God's holy and precious gift. So does fruitful and multiply mean that every couple should have as many children as possible? I know that some of you have probably struggled with that. I know we certainly have in our own family. Well, let me assure you that Scripture doesn't say that, doesn't tell us that we must have as many children as possible. What it does tell us, what we do understand, it's a very personal decision for every couple. There may be good reasons to conclude that your particular quiver is full. And we know for sure, though, that we are not to avoid children for selfish reasons. We understand that. So how, how do we know when our quiver is full? Uh, uh, I, don't, I can't tell you the verse to go to. What I can tell you is that we can come before the Lord and earnestly seek His guidance and His, his grace to give us uh, His direction and His counsel. What I know is that uh, in many nations today, particularly in Europe, uh, they promoted, promoted a culture where children are considered an inconvenience and a hindrance to a comfortable lifestyle. Lifestyle is a word that's not even found in Scripture. And those nations today are suffering the economic, the cultural, and the spiritual consequences of declining populations. And moms and dads should certainly earnestly seek God's guidance in knowing when their quiver is full. I, I know the Lord gave Cindy and me great peace when, for the first years of our marriage, we were told that we weren't going to have any kids at all. My, how different our lives would be today. But at that point, that was okay with us. We were ready to adopt, eager to adopt. After all, Cindy, my wife, was adopted, as, even as a tiny baby. And so we understood that genetics was way overrated when it comes to children. And as most of you know, um, that diagnosis of no children uh, didn't hold. The Lord's diagnosis was way better. And so uh, biological babies came. Boy, did they. 
And the Lord gave us peace, though, when we realized that our quiver was full. And uh, we thank God that he gave us that clear direction. And uh, I would just tell you that when your quiver is full and God tells you that and you are at peace about that and not anxious about it, uh, don't be filled with guilt. Thank God for what he has given to you. But what about childless couples or singles with no children? Well, let's not forget a wonderful reality uh, revealed throughout Scripture and abundantly evidenced in this church. The greatest and most effective evangelism is raising godly children and helping to raise godly children. Many believers in this church and across around the world came to the Lord as children through the faithful spiritual nurturing of godly parents. And many children and adults came to the Lord through the faithful witness of godly men and women in this church, some of whom do not have their own biological children. But they have the joy of having many spiritual sons and daughters. Uh, Let's not forget the Apostle Paul, who was uh, unmarried and celibate. He referred to Timothy as my true child in the faith and my beloved son my beloved child. In particular, blessed are the ones whose spiritual quiver is full. Well, finally, we see here that children are an honor to their parents, or should be an honor to their parents. Verse 5b, the last part of verse 5. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And of course, this is the one whose quiver is full. It speaks of the extraordinary level of honor and respect given to families with children. It was seen as perhaps the greatest and most visible evidence of God's blessing upon a couple. The Jews saw this as part of fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that his offspring will be as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And conversely, in that culture and that time, barrenness was considered a shame or dishonor, often as evidence of God's displeasure or his withholding of blessing. Well, let's be clear, the Bible doesn't teach that at all, but merely reports how barrenness was seen at the time. What it does teach is that a childless woman and man can implore the Lord to grant a child if there is barrenness. You remember Hannah's plea for a child in 1 Samuel chapter 1? It's a good prayer. It's a powerful prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord in all all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. A reference to the Nazarite vow. We find both a plea and a promise in Hannah's prayer. Lord, give me a son, and if you do, I will dedicate him completely to you. I will give him back to you. The Lord did, and Hannah did. Cindy and I uh, remember praying fervently nearly uh, 40 years ago for the unborn daughter of a couple in our church, Ron and Janet Hoover, who are still members of this church today. And Janet was at risk of losing her baby. She was told that she would have to remain in bed for the last several months of her pregnancy. And many of us in this church at that time prayed for Janet and for that unborn, unborn baby. And um, the reason I'm sharing that story is that by 
God's grace, that baby was born healthy and is now our son Andrew's wife of nearly 20 years and the mother of four of our grandchildren. As I think about that, I think God in his sovereign grace grants to us children that grow up and bring honor to us and glorify our Lord. But note the last part of this verse, when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. In in a real sense, children are meant not to be as burdens to their parents, but defenders and supporters of their parents. That's how they bring honor to, to their parents. Their godly lives are the ultimate honor and evidence of God's grace and God's blessing. And they are a protection to their parents. And they bring honor first and foremost through their parents as their parents teach their children to obey the fifth commandments, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long on the earth. And why do their days be long upon the earth? So that they grow up to be old enough to take care for their parents when they get old. Godly, obedient children are the greatest blessing. Let us be faithful in committing them, giving them back to the Lord, nurturing them in the Lord. Well, in this psalm, we've seen God's sovereign care. His sovereign care over our homes, his sovereign care over our cities, his sovereign care over our labors, and even over our sleep. And we've seen the blessing of children and his care for children. They're a heritage, they're a reward, they're a protection, they're a blessing, and they are an honor. All a gift from our our gracious Lord. And he alone can give us the joy of our hearts. Security in our lives, in our work, in our homes, and the heritage of godly children. But apart from saving faith in the Lord Jesus, there is no real security, let's understand that. There's nothing that really lasts for eternity. The Bible says that we must come to him as children, acknowledging our helplessness and saving ourselves and our complete dependence upon him for any hope of salvation. And so we must come to him with complete dependence upon the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus as payment for our sins. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John tells us that all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God. Do you want to be a blessing to God? Be born in him. Be born again in him. Become his child. Well, in teaching, uh, in teaching through Psalms, uh, since they are songs, psalms means song, um, I've had the privilege of, uh, or chosen, to share a hymn or a song at the end of each psalm, and I'm going to do that for you today. Um, Frances Ridley Havergal, she was born in 1836. She was an English poet and a hymn writer. And she wrote such well-known hymns as, I gave my life for thee, and like a river, glorious is God's perfect peace. And she wrote uh, hymns and melodies and religious tracts and devotionals and works for children. And she died in 1879 at the age of 42. But before that, in 1874, she wrote this hymn that I'll share with you now. Take my life and let it be. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it for you. But uh, I just want to also let you know that uh, I took took the liberty of adding an extra an extra stanza to the hymn this morning. You'll hear that. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days 
Let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at thy impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. And then finally, take my household and my home. Make them, Lord, thy very own. Take my children that they may be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Lord, we thank you for these moments that we've had to dive into your word, to be reminded, Lord, of the eternal truth that you and you alone give meaning to our lives, that you and you alone give us care and protection and security in our homes, in our work, in our country, in our, Lord, in the very essence of our lives, that you, Lord, grant your grace. And Lord, we thank you that you have granted to us the wonderful gift of children. May we be faithful, Lord, and recognizing that you and you alone are the source of that blessing. And may our children indeed be a heritage in our lives and generations to come. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.